Good morning, Grace. I'm Kenny, one of the elders of Grace. It's my privilege here this morning to take us to the Gospel of Luke. Here, chapter 18, why don't you open your Bibles there. When Walt sent me the songs earlier this week, seeing what we were going to sing and seeing that sort of paraphrase of Romans 8 that we just sang and the way that it stacks up these bold claims that we just sang with confidence, that's amazing. We just, we just claimed a lot of things very boldly about who we are and where we stand with God and how God sees us. And I wanted to start in light of the parable that we're going to be in by asking you all to consider, myself included, uh, how do you know all these things, those things we just sang, are true of you? On what basis are you confident that you're justified, that God has declared you righteous, spotless, not guilty before him? On the basis of what do you feel confident that the condemnation for your sins has been waived, like we sang, or that you are an adopted, beloved child of God and that God is for you and not against you forever, and that you are securely bound to Christ. Those are some bold statements. What gives you confidence that you are accepted by God like that? Because in this parable, Jesus told, he told it to people, some people who were very confident that they stood in a good place with God, even were impressive to God. And they were dead wrong. And the unlikeliest of characters in Jesus' story, he tells, is to highlight for us and make it very, very clear the only place where we can be confident, the only basis upon which we can be confident that we stand in a good place with God. And he's for us. So let's read this little parable, maybe for many of us, very familiar, but powerful story. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, it's likely that not all of us who entered into this room this morning entered into this room justified. Not all of us who entered this room this morning, even if we sang some of those things very boldly, those things may not be true of us yet. But Lord, because of the help of your spirit, through speaking through your word, it's possible that every one of us could leave this place today justified. Same watching our live stream this morning. Lord, I pray that we would understand clearly the only place our hope can rest to be right with you forever is through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read that parable, I wonder if you feel like Jesus is starting to repeat himself in the Gospel of Luke. We're beginning to hear some of these themes again and again. Echoes of, for example, when Jesus was at that meal with the Pharisees and said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. I came to call sinners to repentance, not the, quote, righteous, at least those who think they are righteous. And the very last verse here should sound familiar to us. We heard it just back in chapter 14 at another meal with Pharisees and scribes. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Word for word, the same statement. And I think Jesus keeps repeating these themes for a couple of reasons. One is people still aren't getting it. Even here, these crowds, maybe some of the people he told this parable to have been in the crowds on previous days. They've been following Jesus and they keep listening in and they still don't get it. There are some, Luke tells us, in the crowds that Jesus knows and is speaking directly to that they still trust in themselves that they are righteous. Some in the crowds, when they hear the question, are you accepted by God? They say yes, and their next statement is because I, and it's not because God. They're trusting in their own righteousness. But I think Jesus keeps repeating himself too because even though, even if we get this, we forget it so quickly. Even as his disciples who have understood it, we quickly can revert to our former programming, can't we? That's why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians because though they had admitted, they had acknowledged it's only through Christ, it's only by grace, it's only because of your spirit, they were tempted to abandon that and, and revert to their former thinking. Paul wrote it to them because they were tempted to desert the one who called them in the grace of Christ and turn aside to a different gospel, which he says really isn't a gospel at all. He says to them, do you think that what was begun by the Spirit now, back to you, to perfect by your flesh? God got you started, but now you work the rest of this righteousness out yourself? No, he said. So we need to keep renouncing. Even, even if we've acknowledged that it's in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, we keep, need to keep renouncing again and again our inclination to think like this Pharisee. That it's Christ plus some of what I contribute. 
And we need to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That's why Jesus tells this parable. For some who haven't gotten that yet and for all of us who have but forget it. And I love, Luke tells us right up front the reason why Jesus told this story. Here's the main point. This is the sermon in a sentence. Don't trust in yourself that you are righteous and treat others or hold others in contempt. That's the takeaway. Don't trust in yourself that you're righteous. If you think your own righteousness will make you acceptable to God, you're wrong. And if you don't turn from that way of thinking and that attitude of the heart, um, judgment is ahead. That's why he says if you exalt yourself in that way, there will be a day where you will be humbled. So this is serious. So here's how I want to break this story up for us to think about. There's two men in this story. There's two prayers that they each pray and two very different results and responses that Jesus uh, declares is true of them in light of their prayer. Two men, two prayers, two results. Let's look at verse 10. The two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Okay, for this story to land, we have to agree right now not to all jump forward to the Sunday school answer that we see coming, right? If you've ever taught kids Sundays, children's Sunday school, there's always at least one smarty pants in the class that will see where your illustration is going and head you off at the pass with a, with a hand raise. Caden Tolkamp, who usually sits here at second service, he teaches third grade Sunday school, and a few weeks ago he was telling me, this has happened two years in a row, he's taught the same curriculum, and, and he was teaching a lesson, and he had this object lesson with a, a, a ripe yellow banana and a brown, like, spoiled banana, and he asked all the kids in the class, which banana do you want to eat? Which is the better banana? And almost all the kids said the yellow one. My, my Elijah's third grade, and he must have missed that Sunday. I was asking him about it yesterday. So I asked him the question. He said the yellow one. But one kid in the class had to raise their hand and say, the brown one, because you can make banana bread with it. <laughs> and he's totally right. And that was actually the point of Caden's illustration, that God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he totally cut him off and stole the thunder of that illustration, right? But here, as we, as we begin this parable, I, I say that because the gospel of Luke by this point, if we've been in it, if you've been here coming again and again, we are already conditioned from the very beginning to say, I know which one's the brown banana. I know which ones. We're here, we hear Pharisee by this point and we go, boo! And we hear tax collector and we're like, he's, good, he's the good guy. He's the good guy. But that's not how people would have heard this story at all. These two men were polar opposites. Daryl Bach, New Testament commentator, he has a great commentary on Luke, but I love how he, he summarizes the vast gap between these two men. These two men represent the polar opposites of first century religious culture. The Pharisee belonged to the most pious movement, the most devout, obedient to God, at least outwardly, while the tax collector was part of the most hated profession. The Pharisee was a sect within Jewish religious leadership that was known for being the most zealous for God and the most devoted to keeping his laws meticulously to the very last I dotted and T crossed. 
And the public perception of them was they were highly respected. I was thinking of Matthew 23. We get this glimpse of how Pharisees were perceived by the community. Even when Jesus is calling them out for their hypocrisy, he says the Pharisees love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. If you set aside for a minute that Jesus is saying they're doing that out of pride, it does tell us that that's just the way they were treated. They were offered the seats of honor and the best seats in the synagogues, and they were greeted in the marketplaces, and people did, out of deference, call them rabbi. They were held in high esteem. They would not have been expected in this story to leave the temple not justified. And then there's this tax collector who was despised as a traitor to his own people, a turncoat that the Romans in power, squeezing taxes out of them, they were aligning themselves with their oppressors and getting rich off of their own people's suffering, extorting them for money. Again, Daryl Bach gives us a glimpse of how they were perceived by their fellow Jews. Listen to this. A Jew who collected taxes was a cause of disgrace to his family, expelled from the synagogue, disqualified as a judge or a witness in court. His word meant nothing. The touch of a tax collector rendered your house unclean. This one is amazing. Jews were forbidden from receiving money, including alms from tax collectors, since tax revenue was deemed robbery. So picture this. A poor beggar would say, sorry, your money is not good with me. I'm desperate in need, but I won't receive your alms because it's filthy. The Jewish contempt of tax collectors is epitomized in a ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity. God gives you a pass to lie to a tax collector, right? I mean, they were just despised. It's amazing that he would even be at the temple at all in this story. No one would have expected him to be the bad guy. He was scum of the earth, morally leprous. And they both go up to the temple to pray. We need to picture this correctly. This isn't two guys slipping into an empty church and lighting a candle and sitting in a quiet place to have a private moment of devotion. This is coming up to the temple courts, probably at one of the two times of the day, the morning and the evening, where ever since God gave the law to Moses, he instructed that twice a day, a lamb will be sacrificed and burned as a burnt offering and the smoke will go up. And people gathered these two times a day at the temple to pray with this visual reminder in the sky of our prayers being accepted and and pleasing aroma to God. So they're both here at this very public gathering of people to pray. And the Pharisee was highly respected, and this tax collector was hated. And they each offer up a prayer, verses 11 through 13. And Jesus, as he tells this story, doesn't just tell us what they prayed, but describes their posture, and then what they prayed to God. So let's look at the Pharisees' prayer. Posture. Just three words. It's so interesting. If you, if you compare them side by side, three words 
to describe the Pharisee's posture and about 30 words to describe his effusive prayer. And it's just the opposite when we get to the tax collector. There's a bunch of words we're going to see that describe his posture and then just a very few that eke out this short, simple prayer for mercy. But here, so here's his posture, three words. The Pharisee, he's standing by himself. Not to be inconspicuous. He's not standing by himself out of the way. He's standing by himself to be seen. Probably like Jesus described Pharisees in Matthew 6 as the ones who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And Jesus also said they love to pray long prayers that people might marvel at their, their pious prayers. So he's standing by himself to be seen, but probably also to be seen as being set apart from everyone else. He's not just like everyone else. He is above. He keeps the law better than these. He separates himself to make sure that anyone else here who may not be as careful as him doesn't defile him as he's come to offer his prayers to God. His posture is dripping with self-righteousness and contempt of others as he stands by himself. But his prayer even more so. I'm going to use air quotes for his prayer because I actually don't think he's praying. I think he says, God, I thank you. He's off to a good start. And then the rest of it is merely uh, recounting his merits before God. He's not praying. He's preening in front of everybody. <laughs> That's what he's doing. He's publicly admiring his own personal righteousness before others, listing his merits before God. And he lists his merits and it shows us what is this personal righteousness in which he trusts? What is it composed of? What makes it up? And we see it's comparative righteousness is the term that Rob Lister used a few weeks ago. It's measured not against the holy holy, holy God and his perfect standard of righteousness, it's measured horizontally looking at others more sinful than he is. He's grading himself on the curve. His prayer, I picture, is like him sending God a selfie at just the perfect angle to capture his most flattering features and, and placing the tax collector conveniently in the back corner just for contrast and then click sending that to God. Thank you, God, that this is who I am. And so notice what his personal righteousness is comprised of. Two things. He avoids the sins of other men and he outdoes his fellow men in acts of piety. He goes above and beyond the average Jewish person. Verse 11, he avoids the sins of other men. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. You think about it, that's a pretty low bar of personal righteousness, right? <laughs> Stack up some of the most egregious ways that a person can, can live a sinful lifestyle and say, I've done none of those things, A+. And we haven't even gotten to the good things that he's done yet. He also says, I go above and beyond the piety of others. As far as um, fasting was concerned, the law prescribed one annual fast on the Day of Atonement. 
It didn't require anything beyond that, but the Pharisees' tradition, like this one, was I fast twice a week. And if he fasted the way that Jesus called some Pharisees out for fasting, probably in a way that made it really obvious to everyone else on his fasting day that he was fasting, making it himself look, you know, unkept and, and hungry and, and just, you know, making it very clear how pious he was. He says, I fast twice a week, 104 times a year, God. And his tithing, giving a tenth, they were required to give a tenth of sort of their income, the, the crops that, that God blessed them with and the flocks that, that were born to them, offering a tenth of God, which would go to, to provide for the tribe of Levi who didn't work but worked for, in the temple and leading worship. But he says, no, I go, go above. I tithe of everything I get, all I get. For example, in the marketplace, going to buy his meat or his fruit or, or grains and just in case they didn't pay the tithe that they should have given when they you know, harvested that crop or killed that animal, just to make sure I'm also going to tithe God on top of that, just to be safe. And he pats himself on the back for his devotion. I was thinking of a few weeks ago when Jesus tells the parable about these servants who at the end of the day even if they've done all they were commanded, still need to say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. The Pharisee is the complete opposite. He is working hard for the thank you of God, and he's very confident that he has it because he avoids these sins of others, and he outdoes his neighbor in good deeds. Years ago, I... I came across the, the poet Billy Collins and, and fell in love with his writing and poems, but he, he wrote this poem called The Lanyard, and ever since I wrote it, my mind associates it with this parable. I want to read it to you. It's a poem reflecting back on a moment from his child, a memory from his childhood. Here's the poem. I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I'd never seen anyone use a lanyard, or wear one if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I'd made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room and lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said. Here's clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied. which I made with a little help from a counselor. <laughs> Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now is a smaller gift, not the well-worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took that two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom 
would be enough to make us even. Moms, can you feel that poem? (laughs) All of us who were kids, can you feel that poem? Do you see the Pharisee standing there proudly in the court of the temple holding up his lanyard? He's just as sure as he could be that these sins he avoids and the good deeds that he's done are more than enough to make him right with a perfect and holy God. As he measures himself against the unrighteousness of others, he thinks he stacks up pretty good. God, thank you that I am not like other men. Look at my lanyard. Jesus saw right through their lanyard. He called many of these same Pharisees whose lives were so impeccable on the outside whitewashed tombs that were filled with dead men's bones. They patted themselves on the backs for their micro-tithing of their spices in their spice rack. Here's a tenth of dill and mint and every spice. Jesus says you neglect weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, Here's a caution for all of us right now, myself included. It would be seriously blindsided of us right now if in our hearts we're thinking, God, thank you that I'm not self-righteous and arrogant and judgmental like this Pharisee, right? (laughs) So we have to ask, friends, are we measuring our personal righteousness by the same sort of standard? Are we grading ourselves on the curve? Maybe there's some of you here um, all your life. That's the way you've generally understood it. Maybe you call yourself a Christian and you've been part of the church since you were a kid. But generally speaking, in your mind, you still think in terms of that scale and you look around and there's some really, really bad people in our world who do really, really horrible things. And your life looks pretty clean. And you do quite a few good things. And you might think, well, I'm not a sex trafficker. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not on the internet scamming elderly people out of their money. I'm not doing so bad. I go to church both services. I'm in here and I'm about to go serve in the second service. By the way, that's a great thing to do. It's just a terrible, lousy basis for your justification before God. But don't, don't, yeah, please do that. (laughs) We need help, second service. But... You you can think, I read through the Bible every year, the New Testament twice. I don't just give to the general offering at at Grace, I do, but we also support other missionaries privately. You should see the magnets on our fridge. We do lots of good things. I serve at Food Bank. I serve in the community. Fill in your list of pious deeds. The problem, though, with comparative righteousness is it's defined in relation to other sinners and not according to God's perfect standard of holiness. To say that I'm righteous before God because I'm a little better than my neighbor is like me saying I'm closer to the sun than my son Elijah because I'm two feet taller than him. I mean, that's just absurd. We all fall short. Psalm 130, verse 2. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Answer, nobody. None is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Some of us have just done it in in ways that were more obvious on the outside and others uh, not so obvious on the outside. Together, we've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Are you beginning to see 
maybe for the first time, why trusting in your own righteousness is a dead end. And looking down your nose and holding others in contempt for how you stack up next to them is so foolish. It will never justify you before God. That's the Pharisee's prayer. Let's look at the tax collector's prayer. The brown banana. Look at his posture. Jesus describes three things about his posture. His location, he's standing far off. So now he is wanting to be inconspicuous. When you think about how he was thought of by his fellow Jews, it's amazing that he would even be at the temple at all. So he's in a a very inconspicuous place, as far off as he can be. His posture shows he knows how unworthy he is to be in this place, offering a prayer to this God among these people. And it says he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, another outward sign of the posture of his heart. It's contrite. He understands that there's this chasm between God's holiness and his sinfulness, and he feels the appropriate shame and guilt. That's what, when you can't look God in the eye, that's what it's saying. I'm not worthy to look you in the eye, God. As despicable as everyone else there would have held this man, he felt it more deeply than them all. That's repentance. And it says he beat his breast, a sign of anguish. It's like what's inside here, God. This is what's corrupt. This is what defiles me. This is what makes me unworthy. There's sort of a a righteous self-loathing. That's the first step of humble repentance. And then his prayer is so short and simple and sincere. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He makes two things very clear in this simple prayer. It's funny, after the Pharisee had just recounted all of his righteousness, we might expect the, the Pharisee's prayer to start listing all of his sins, but he doesn't even l- recount his sins. He just goes right to the heart of it. He says, I am a sinner. Don't just be merciful to me because I have sinned, God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I am a sinner. That's who I am. All the sin I've committed only comes out of the rottenness that's in here that I can't fix. I can't forgive, get forgiven on my own. I am a sinner. I tend to think in hymns, just the way I'm wired, but Jesus, lover of my soul, has a verse that I think is, is capturing the way that this tax collector prays. It says, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Oh, that's not a baptism class, eh? I have those lyrics. Maybe put them up there. Uh, oh, no, you don't. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Uh, false and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. He acknowledges the chasm between God and himself. He says, I have no hope in my own righteousness. My only hope, on the other hand, is that God, you are merciful. My only hope, all my chips are banking on that, God, you are a merciful God. But it's a particular kind of mercy that this tax collector is asking for based on Jesus' wording, I think. Here's what I mean. Look ahead a few verses in this chapter, verse 37 and 39. We'll get here in a few weeks. But this blind beggar 
cries out to Jesus as he's passing by with almost the same words as the tax collector's prayer here. Twice, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. But the beggar uses a different word than the tax collector. The beggar cries out with this word, eleison, show me mercy. The tax collector's prayer has this word that only shows up twice in the New Testament. Right here in this tax collector's prayer, And the author of Hebrews uses it in Hebrews 2.17 as he describes Christ becoming a merciful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation, that word, halaskamai, is the same word, be merciful by making propitiation. If you've never heard that word, let me explain it. It's very simple. It's becoming an atoning sacrifice, a target for God's righteous wrath and judgment to fall upon so that another can escape it. It's bearing God's righteous wrath in the place of another, covering over the sin of the one by bearing it. And it's so interesting. Jesus has this tax collector say, God, be merciful to me. This is how I imagine it. Jesus has, now, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, and this full understanding of this doctrine of justification that Paul later explains has not yet been all figured out by the disciples, but I think the seeds of it are right here in the way that this tax collector cries out. I think this is the picture. As he's standing far off in the temple court and smoke is rising from the morning or the evening sacrifice, and he is looking at the chasm of sin that separates him from God, he's saying, God, is there a mercy great enough to provide a sacrifice that can cover my sin? To span this gap between me and you, the Holy One. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn that captures this humble desperation of the tax collector. This I do have a slide for. This is what he's saying. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, to his face. I wouldn't listen to his calls. I've grieved him by a thousand falls. That's the tax collector's prayer. Oops, if you could put a blank one in between those, that would be great. Two very different men, two very different prayers and two very different results. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's start with the Pharisee. I want to take him in reverse order. The Pharisee did not go home justified. He thought he was accepted by God, but he walked home and the one who stood by himself, proudly separating himself from everyone else, went home remaining separate from the very God whose mercy he didn't think he needed. So I want to ask you this morning, if God is helping you see that you are standing in the Pharisee's shoes this morning, you've been trusting in your own righteousness to some extent all along. With maybe with a nod to Jesus and the cross, but in your heart, it really is, at the end of the day, um, about your righteousness. One application, trade in your lanyards for Christ's. 
Only the sinless son of God, born as a man so that he could suffer the consequences of your sin that you deserved and live the obedient life, fulfilling God's perfect righteous standard of his law in your place that can justify you before God. Look at the cross. His cross helps you estimate the gap. If you don't see the gap, look at the cross. And then ask yourself, why did God take on flesh and though innocent, subject himself to being betrayed and abandoned and condemned as a criminal and beaten and mocked and crucified and laid in a grave in your place. If any man had a worthy lanyard, a righteousness that was acceptable to God that he could share with others, it was Jesus. Do you think Christ would have suffered all that if your lanyard could get the job done? You look at the cross and you realize, no, that's, that was, that's always been a fool's errand. My only hope is that God is, would be merciful to me. I think in songs. So here's another song. If this morning, that's you, there's a Sovereign Grace song called Not In Me that they wrote on this album of songs inspired by the Gospel of Luke. And one, this song, Not In Me, was inspired by this parable. And the songwriter said, they imagined if a Pharisee listening to this parable was cut to the heart and convicted and repented like the tax collector, what might his prayer sound like? And wrote this. No list of sins that I have done. If this is you this morning and you realize I'm the Pharisee, I need to repent of trusting in my righteousness, this is your prayer. God, no list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness, it's not in me, but only you. If you pray that this morning for the first time, would you come find me or one of our, our prayer team at the front this morning? We'd love to talk with you and help you understand what it means now to live this life you now live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. How about the tax collector result? This man went home justified. The one who was standing far off was brought near to God whose mercy he knew he didn't deserve. The one who humbled himself was exalted. Two applications way I want to think this morning. One, maybe this morning you identify with the tax collector. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. And maybe this morning you are realizing the significant gap between you and your life and your heart and a holy, sinless God. You feel the gap, and like the tax collector, you wonder, could God be merciful to me? To me, knowing all that I've done, all that I am? And the answer is yes. The cross shows you this too. The cross shows you the depth of his mercy. He, Christ died for you, for your sin, for your gap. He lived a righteous life for you that you've not lived. And the tax collector shows you the simple way. You don't need a big fancy prayer. You don't need to say just the right things to God. It's nothing. It's not in you. You just say, God, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. Recognizing that God's mercy toward you is offered at the expense of Christ who gave himself for you. You say, Father, forgive me for my sin because of Jesus. Cover me with Jesus' righteousness. And Spirit, come in my life and start cleaning things up. Help me walk in a way that's pleasing to you. That could be you today. You could leave these, this place justified. 
last application. I think it could also be that some of us might so identify with the tax collector's unworthiness and self-loathing that you struggle to believe that you can go home justified. You know, there's a form of humbling oneself that can stay in a bad place and actually resist the grace of Christ. You can be so focused on the size of the gap and your sin and your unworthiness that you actually don't look to the cross and you stay standing far off. Unlike the tax collector, you hold back from even asking him for mercy until you've shown him that you can do better. That's just another lanyard. Notice he says the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who repents and and, and cries out for God's mercy, Jesus will then welcome and lift up and declare clean and say you're my beloved And what might look like humility on the outside might be a form of pride on the inside that resists Jesus lifting up work, saying, I just can't forgive myself. There's a pride that says, there's not enough mercy for me. And again, that's another another lanyard. Somehow I've got to add more contrition, more self-abasement and self-loathing for my cry for mercy to be accepted by God. Do you see that's just another form of your own righteousness? There's a way that you can be a Pharisee and look like a tax collector on the outside. What's the solution again? It's the same thing. You look to the cross. Because not only does the cross help me see how far short I fall from God and how much mercy I need from him, but it works the other way around. When I'm looking at the magnitude of my own sin and it looms really large from me and then look to the cross and go, oh, that's how big the grace of Christ is for me. That's how much the the, the sacrifice of Jesus can cover. Throughout your Christian life, the more, in this weird way, the more that you understand the holiness of God, the more you understand the depth and the, the, the depth of your sin. And in some ways, the longer you walk with Christ, you can actually feel like a greater sinner. But if we keep looking to the cross, we keep realizing that the cross is one size fits all. It keeps expanding to the size of the record of debt that we continue to stack up. God, Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner before you'd racked up all that debt. And the size of the grace of the cross enlarges to cover all of your sin. I got one more hymn for you. I got a Charles Wesley hymn for you this morning. If that's you, you're a believer, but you struggle with just putting yourself in the basement and putting yourself in the corner and only feeling like you could lift your eyes to God on your good days and not your bad days. Here's a hymn for you. This is your prayer. Arise, my soul, arise. This is a hymn you sing to yourself. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My confidence before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. I'm praying that that every one of us walks out these doors this morning justified and knowing it, assured of it. Let's take a moment for, for prayer. I want to give you a moment before we close with a song. I believe Jesus has something for everyone here to hear from this parable this morning. So take a minute and ask God, what did I need to hear this morning? And how do I need to talk with you, God, in light of it?